BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you. Beautiful rainy day. Actually, fall is here. It's a peak autumn in the Pacific Northwest, which is really great. The Supreme Court just struck down a lower court ruling. This was from the uh, uh, three-judge panel in Michigan, uh, in the uh, Eastern District of Michigan, ruled back in April that 34 of Michigan's state voting districts had been specifically designed, their language specifically designed to disadvantage Democratic voters, deliberately diluting the power of their vote to ensure a particular partisan outcome. They called this a pernicious practice that undermines our democracy. So this went to the Supreme Court and John Roberts in a five, this is a five to four decision, Conservatives all said, gerrymandering in Michigan is just fine. And the four liberals were like, this shouldn't be happening. This violates democracy. Elena Kagan wrote a just an absolutely, you know, rip them a new one a response to this, saying, I think it's important to underscore that fact. The majority disputes none of how gerrymanders undermine democracy. In other words, all the Republicans agree. Yes, gerrymanders undermine democracy. In fact, she continues, indeed, the majority concedes, really, how could it not, that gerrymandering is incompatible with democratic principles. And she said this in the bench, right, which means that she was like really punching this stuff out. And I mean, this is the power of the Supreme Court. This is the power of living in this constitutional monarchy. And you can say, well, you know, uh, this was the will of the people, was it not? It was the vote in Michigan. No, it was the will of the billionaires who had basically, you know, poured enough money in to get these Republicans elected in Michigan. I mean, I grew up in Michigan. I know the politics there pretty well. And that was facilitated by the Supreme Court, too, in striking down laws that Congress had passed in the 1970s that controlled money in politics. Now you've got Amazon funding a campaign in Seattle as a consequence of a Supreme Court decision that made this possible, right? Or a series of Supreme Court decisions, Buckley, First National Bank, Citizens United, McCutcheon, these Supreme Court decisions saying money is speech. Oh yeah, it's just, it's just free speech. It's, just, it's all good, you know? So if Amazon doesn't like a socialist on the city council in Seattle, they can put a million and a half bucks into the campaign and just blow her away. This is a mind-boggling amount of power in the hands of nine people who are not elected. 
As you know, I've got a new book out about this, the, the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America. And here we have, you know, the, the betrayal of America again by the court. And if the court is going to have this kind of power, and frankly, I doubt that that's going to change. If the court is going to have this kind of power, then when Democrats get control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, they need to expand the court. They need to pack the court. They need, you know, we need to go back to, to FDR days. But this is, you know, just breaking news, and I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. The Supreme Court is just fine with our democracy being hijacked by billionaires. After all, most of the, you know, the majority of the people on the Supreme Court are the toadies of billionaires. Or five out of the nine of them. So we've got this grifter in the White House, and on top of this, there's this amazing story in Vanity Fair about how somebody keeps, right before Donald Trump makes loud and sometimes shocking statements about, oh, I'm about to cut a deal with China, or the deal with China just fell apart, or no, the deal with China's back on. These are market-moving statements. And before he says these things, somebody is buying, in one case, $1.5 billion worth of bets on the market moving based on what the president is going to say. And we don't know who it is or how it's being paid off, but this, I wanted to get Richard Wolf, Professor Richard Wolf on and talk about this. This is, this is uh, not quite macroeconomics, but it's certainly the, the intersection of economics, politics, the law. Professor Richard Wolf is the co-founder of Democracy at Work, the website democracyatwork.info. His website, rdwolf with two fs.com, rdwolf.com. He's the author most recently of Understanding Marxism. Dr. Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. So uh, could you uh, explain to us what is going on if there is, you know, a history to this kind of thing being done by people uh, in the know in politics and what the consequences of it might be? What's going on here? Absolutely. This is an old problem. It sometimes goes by the name of insider trading, which is a broad term covering a multitude of sins. But the basic idea is the stock market is supposed to be a place where everybody who buys and sells securities has access to the same information, that there is nobody in a position uh, to have information not generally available and then can buy or sell based on that. That's not supposed to happen. And it is punishable by law. If you are caught using information not generally accessible, you can be imprisoned, you can be fined, etc. Notwithstanding that, it would take a large army to catch all the people that are in a position to do that. They are people who work in or close to corporations who have the inside track on knowing what the plans of those corporations are before the public does. So if you know, for example, that Corporation X is uh, finally decided it's going to build a new factory in, I'll just pick something as an example, Denver, Colorado, you are aware of that because your sister or brother or you yourself are on the board of directors or the planning department of that corporation, you are now not supposed to trade on that unaccessible information to the public. But of course, it's easy to have someone in your family or your friends uh, go and buy real estate close to where the factory will be built, uh, buy shares of stock in the company if you have reason to believe that once the expansion is announced, 
people are going to think well about that company and buy its shares on the stock market. So now we come to Mr. Trump. People in the know in the government in Washington, around the White House, they know, at least the hypothesis is they know, that uh, President Trump is likely to say one of his uh, news-breaking things, because he's an expert at it, he does it all the time, uh, and either China will go up or China will go down or Canada will go up or a Huawei corporation will go down, or somebody will be sanctioned, or the Turks will be turned around, or whatever. And if you know that, even if you only know it an hour or two before the public, you can go in and either buy or sell securities, borrow them, have an arrangement with someone that you deliver shares at a certain date in the future at a certain time, knowing that you can do that by buying them tomorrow after the bad news is out at a very low price and p passing them on to the person you've contracted with at the initial agreed higher price. The, the deals you can make are extraordinary, and the Vanity Fair article cites several examples in which people made, and this is a, important, tens of millions, in some cases hundreds of millions of dollars literally in a matter of hours by trading on that inside information. And so the question comes, given Mr. Trump's use of his office for all the other uh, self-serving commercial interests, could there be someone in his circle, uh, he or anybody in his family or anybody in his wider circle of friends, who gets a tip a few minutes beforehand and is then able to carry out one of these trades and all it does is add more to that concept of the stock market that goes by the name casino capitalism. Yeah. I mean, there's this this one, uh, they say, uh, this was the day that Trump uh, had just arrived in Japan. Uh, he was about to meet with President Xi of China. Um, and somebody bought 420,000 September E-minis in the last 30 minutes of trading, this is June 28th, that was 40% of the day's trading volume in the September E-minis, e making it a trade that would be hard to ignore. Uh, Trump goes into the meeting, comes out, and announces to the world that the trade talks are back on track. And, right. and the next sentence in the article, whoever bought the 420,000 E-minis on June 28th made a handsome profit of nearly $1.8 billion. Now, right. and, uh, and, and, and people and, should understand, they made that literally in a period of hours after they bought those things. Um, and the only thing that moved the market was the statement by Mr. Trump. Had those people known that Mr. Trump was likely to make some such of a statement, this would have been a riskless investment. It couldn't go down if he did nothing. It could only go up if he did what they what, what in fact he did. So, of course, this is going to happen on a mammoth scale, because if you can earn that much plus and the risk is minimal, it's just uh, too attractive for stock market hustlers uh, to, to not do. Yeah. So uh, who enforces this? Is this the Securities Exchange Commission, the SEC? Basically, that's right. They're, that's their job to oversee the securities markets. It's their job to investigate huge trades of the sort you just mentioned, since those are usually signs that something odd is going on. But you know, to be fair to them, uh, and I don't want to excuse them, they didn't catch these things, but it is hard because it is extremely widespread. 
you know, if a company is bumbling along uh, and you invest in it, it's not going to go up or down very much. So your risk is very low. If you plan to buy it and sell it again a week or two or a month later, you're not normally at great risk. If you have reason to believe that something is going to happen, you have inside information, then the, being the risk is very low. The chance of what you've heard about is, is there. You can only gain by it if it doesn't happen within the week or month that you expect. Well, then you just sell what you bought more or less at the same price. That's what I mean. The risk of these kinds of investments, very low. The chance of return, very high. Right. It's very hard in a society, a capitalist society, where there's a stock market, where this kind of gambling is everyday activity, very hard not to have an enormous number of people playing elaborate games uh, to do exactly that. Uh, the reason I mentioned the Securities and Exchange Commission is that's an, ex that's an agency within the executive branch. The head of the Securities and Exchange Commission answers to Donald Trump. <laughs> and... Um, uh, Yes. You know. that, only, that, that only compounds, that's right. They don't have the personnel. It's very difficult to do. And if the person in charge is someone over whom you have political power and authority, then yes, the collection of circumstances is precisely the sort that will likely make some uh, writer 10 or 20 years from now writing about the period we're living through, shaking his or her head. Right. That's a massive fraud and gullibility that we are living through. Oh, yeah, I think this Durrell thing is, is huge. Well, I mean, when this came through, I thought that it was Andy Borowitz. Trump awards that's the right. G7 summit to himself. I mean, that's the headline in the Washington Post. I thought this has got to be Andy Borowitz. Professor Wolf, is there anything happening in the economic news right now that you think we need to be paying particular attention to? I mean, we were talking about the repo market yes. a while ago. What What's up now? Yes, uh, two reports issued over the last 48 hours by the International Monetary Fund should scare the pants off everybody. Number one, that the trade war with China is really biting into the world economy and in ways that will continue whether or not a deal is reached over the next six to 12 months. And the other report points out that in the aftermath of the crisis of 2008, when central banks from the Federal Reserve on over to Bank of Japan and everything in between lowered interest rates, record amounts, so that we even have negative interest rates in large parts of the world today, every corporation with a problem solved it by borrowing unheard amounts of money because it was virtually free for them to do so. The result is we're now facing the next downturn of our unstable capitalism with a level of corporate debt that the IMF calculates will make a large portion of major corporations unable to service the debt they've accumulated in the event of a downturn, which the majority of economists now think is virtually certain in the next 12 months. Those are two reports from the IMF, and they really ought to be explored, examined, and debated because of the fear and the reasonableness of the fear of what we're in store for. Yeah, I saw that, that one in particular that so many of these companies, if, if the downturn was even half as bad as 2008, it said it would, right. it would flip all these companies. They could not service their debt. That's which correct. Which means everybody who lent to them, all the big banks, are back in the bottom of the toilet again, asking us to bail them out. Professor Richard Wolf, thank you so much for dropping by today.
Hey, Tom, glad to talk with you. Great speaking with you. I look forward to our next conversation. Dr. Richard Wolf's uh, websites, democracyatwork.info and rdwolf.com, uh, Wolf with two Fs. And you can tweet him at Prof Wolf. Hey, it's Monday, a great time to uh, go on a diet. Uh, you know, until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. My wife convinced me that there was one worth sharing, and a year later, I'd have to say she's right. The key to losing weight is getting your appetite and those pesky food cravings under control. And once you do that, the rest is easy. My producer, Sean, is now taking Reggie's on, too. Who doesn't want to lose a few pounds before the holidays? Sean says Ridgizone is making it easier for her to stick with her weight loss plan. Just one capsule with breakfast, and that's it. Second one at dinner for days when you need a little extra help. Sean says when you don't feel hungry, it's easier to make better choices. The only ingredient in Ridgizone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant. And that really appealed to both Louise and Sean. Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and get up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to RidUZone.com. It's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. RidUZone.com. Promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, RidUZone.com. Jason in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Jason, what's on your mind? Thank you for watching Free Speech TV. What's Good up? Good afternoon. Yes, I love it. I'd like to say the Gilded Age, workers had it better then because it's not as bad now where you know, the rich are just getting richer, the poor get poorer, and Amazon and all these other companies can buy up politicians and and robed on the Supreme Court say, that's okay, do whatever you like. Well, that was largely true during the Gilded Age. That was what led directly to the antitrust laws. The Sherman Antitrust Act in 1890 was a direct consequence of the the Gilded Mm -hmm. Age excesses of of the 1880s and 1890s. And, mm-hmm. of course, that led to the Tillman. I mean, this led to Teddy Roosevelt and trust busting and, and uh, William Howard Taft, two Republican progressive presidents who broke up all these giant corporations. I mean, you know, we've been here before. Yeah, we've been here before, but we don't have nowhere near a progressive re- Republican anywhere in that party anymore. Right. Scott and, uh, and uh, Trump and all of them, nowhere near pro- pro- progressive. Yeah. Nope. Yeah, well, I get that, but at the time, you know, there there were not a lot of progressives in the Democratic Party. Actually, <laughs> they were oh, mostly, no. mostly Republicans. The no, Democrats were the party, the party of the racist South back in the 1910. Mm-hmm. You know, at the time of Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. which is why it took you know a Republican and the Republican Party to do that. But True. the challenge to this corporate power to say that you know the Facebook is going to decide who our next president is, and now it's come out that Pete Buttigieg is hiring people based on recommendations coming from the CEO of Facebook for his campaign. I mean, really? It's like we've got now a corporate candidate, too? It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Jason, thanks hey, a lot for the call. Day. Yeah, good talking to you. I think you're absolutely right. And, and it raises a whole bunch of questions, like, what can we do about this? Particularly it, when the Supreme Court says, oh, it's, it's all good. right? Will this be resolved by an election? Do you think that it's possible that the election of 2020 will be enough to restore democracy to the United States to the extent that we're no longer a democracy or to the extent that our democracy has been dramatically, tragically, terribly damaged. If so, which candidates do you think are actually going to work to restore democracy? I mean, I was just complaining a moment ago about Buttigieg hiring people based on recommendations from the CEO of Facebook. But on the other hand, Pete Buttigieg has come right out and said that 
one of his top priorities would be rolling back Citizens United. And Citizens United is one of these, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these incredibly pernicious influences that have led to essentially, uh, you know, the destruction of, uh, uh, of American democracy, I think, in many ways. And, you know, of course, Citizens United didn't come out of nowhere. It started in 1976 with the Buckley decision. Of course, corporate personhood, you know, go back to the late 19th century and bring that forward. And that doctrine has been evolving over the years. And again, this is all stuff brought to us courtesy of the Supreme Court. Thank you. Spot on. Hey, Connie, what's up? PBS had a special the other night on the Supreme Court, and they talked about the Federalist Society. There's about five of them that come out of there on the Supreme Court. That's correct. And McConnell, I don't know, it scared me to death. McConnell has a lot of power. Yeah, we used to we used to vet Supreme Court nominees through the American Bar Association, and uh-huh. the Republicans stopped doing that, and they started vetting them through the Federalist Society, which was created by the Koch brothers and a few other cranky right wing billionaires back in the seventies uh-huh. to uh, uh-huh. basically find promising young law school students and turn them into right wing crazies, and then get them on federal benches and state benches for that matter, and they're doing it. And you're absolutely right. This is yeah. this is a horror show, Connie. Yes. And that's that's why I'm saying it's time for us to talk about the title of the chapter in my book where I quote John Roberts' memo at some length. Not the last chapter, but the next to the last chapter. And the title of the chapter is, In Case of Emergency Break Glass. I mean, this is something that has not been done in 240 years, but maybe we need to consider doing it because that's how bad things are getting. And yes. so, yeah. Anyway, Connie, I need to move along, but thank you for the call and thanks for weighing in. Ronald in Chicago. Hey, Ronald, thoughts on the Supreme Court? Uh, first of all, our selection process is crazy. Why should we have the majority party in the Senate make all confirmations on Supreme Court justices and appellate court justices anyway? Why not a committee of both parties with input from the citizens of this country so we can truly have other people, better people, poorer people? Yeah, that's absolutely brilliant, Ronald. I mean, putting together judicial commissions the way that uh, California did their reapportionment commissions, you know, that dis- determine congressional boundaries. And you have basically a group of people who are academics who are not partisans making these decisions. The reason, by the way, the Constitution is written the way it is, the reason why it goes through the Senate is the Senate was not elected by the people at the time, and neither was the president. The president was, it was and isn't today. Now we have direct election of the Senate, and we have since, I think, 1917. But the president is still elected by the Electoral College. And the idea was... There were people among the founders. I mean, this was a big debate at the founding of the Republic. Shall we be essentially a democratic or a constitutional monarchy, or shall we be a constitutional democratic republic? And those people who were in favor of monarchy, essentially, were saying, you know, the courts need to be completely independent. The most independent bodies in Congress will be the Senate, which is, uh, you know, the senators are picked by the individual states, and the president, who's picked by the Electoral College, they're the least likely to be buffeted by the winds of public opinion. So they're the most likely to be nonpartisan and thoughtful and, and, you know, respectful of law and precedent, which is what you're talking about, Ronald, and spot on. And thank you for the suggestion. But, you know, unfortunately, that's not how it worked out, and the Senate got corrupted, and the Senate has become partisan, and now the court has become corrupted by the Federalist Society and by the Republican Party. And, yeah, Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, what's up? 
Yeah, I just called up with a little quibble about terminology. In modern political science, terminology of constitutional monarchy is like what we have in Northern Europe and not like what the framers might have imagined. You're right. But, uh, You're right. I would in modern like terms. to... Uh, but, but, even, but, but if I can insert, Mike, it, there are still some constitutional monarchies in Europe where the monarch can strike down laws. There are Most of them, the monarch can't strike down the law. There are some, you know, in, Ger in Germany, they have a special Supreme Court in addition to their Supreme Court that only does constitutional evaluation. It meets very rarely, very, very rarely. In the Netherlands, the Supreme Court does not have the power of judicial review. So back to yeah, you. The titular executive doesn't have the power to strike down laws anywhere in Europe that I'm aware of. But uh, as long as we have a Senate where 10 cows have as much political authority as I do, this whole problem will not go away. Yeah, I agree. So what's your solution for solving the Supreme Court problem? Because this is going to be a crisis, I guarantee you, for the next president. If you get President Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or even President Joe Biden trying to expand Medicare or trying to take on the Republican voter games that are going on, like in Ohio, where they just, the head of the Ohio League of Women Voters discovered that her name was on the 200,000 people that Ohio was going to purge from the voting list, you know, a month before the elections. She's pissed off and, and fighting back, but uh, the Republicans in Ohio are still like, hey, we're going to, these 200,000 people, they, yeah, they just happen to be in Democratic districts, but we're going to take them off the voting rolls. So what well, do you do? All the solutions you've mentioned are viable, but before we can get any of them through, we have to get control of the Senate and the White House. Yeah, absolutely. In a big way. Spot on. Brendan in Melrose, Massachusetts. Hey, Brendan, what's up? We need to keep hammering this. Is The Supreme Court is important. I know it's hard to change. I know you've, you've talked about different ways of doing this, but we need to keep judges in our minds as Democrats to push again for people to get out and vote and show what they've done in the Supreme Court since they've been put on and, and push that agenda as much as possible. Yeah. Because I helped get elected to Supreme Court in Pennsylvania, and that was the redistricting that gave us five more seats in the Democratic Party because of the fact that we elect our Supreme Court there. Right. So, you know, these are things that we need to keep pushing for. There you go. I'm with you. Brennan, thank you for the call. All excellent points. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America by a guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, A Rebellion Against Monarchy. And it opens with a quote from Abraham Lincoln, the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court the instant they are made, then in ordinary litigation between parties and personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having, to that extent, practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent Supreme Court tribunal. This is from his first inaugural speech, explaining why he was refusing to recognize Dred Scott. From the time Americans wake up in the morning throughout their days, work or play, right through a full night's sleep, everything they do, touch, ingest, breathe, and use has been touched in one way or another by the Supreme Court. Food, drugs, transportation, clothes, furniture, roadways, water, septic, electricity, everything in modern life is regulated in some way, either in manufacture, distribution, sale, or use. And those regulations are allowed or disallowed, ultimately, by the U.S. Supreme Court. At home and in the workplace, Americans' lives are regulated by the Supreme Court also, whether there can be a minimum wage or unemployment insurance, how much power employers have over labor unions and employees, 
whether consumers can sue when harmed by products or corporate actions, and how far police and other agencies can go in prosecuting, or sometimes persecuting, individuals or entire groups of people. The court determines and defines the limits of your right to protest and your right to a free press. It has final say in everything from taxation to regulation, from public space to private space, from contraception to marriage. Both directly and indirectly, the court determines how wealth can be earned, accumulated, and disposed of. It decides how far the rich can go in exploiting the poor and working people, and whether working people can fight back. Meanwhile, America has ended up, mostly since around 1980, with one of the most corrupted political systems in the developed world, with billionaires and big corporations literally writing legislation to benefit themselves from the federal to state to local levels. As Tim Wu wrote for the New York Times in March 2019, quote, about 75% of Americans favor higher taxes for the ultra-wealthy. The idea of a federal law that would guarantee paid maternity leave attracts 67% support. 83% favor strong net neutrality rules for broadband, and more than 60% want stronger privacy laws. 71% think we should be able to buy drugs imported from Canada, and 92% want Medicare to negotiate for lower drug prices, end quote. Yet Congress as a whole has not even once seriously considered any of these things in decades. The reason, quite simply, is literally billions of dollars of politically poisonous cash flowing from corporations and ideologically motivated billionaires into the bloodstream of our body politic. And it wasn't Congress or any president in history who changed laws to make this possible. It was the Supreme Court. Right now and throughout much of U.S. history, the ideological makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court has had little resemblance to the political makeup of our nation. In 2019, for instance, solid majorities of Americans supported a woman's right to access abortion and birth control, voting rights, a national health care system, well-funded public schools and free education through college, higher taxes on corporations to pay for infrastructure and an expanded social safety net, and regulation of corporate behavior from pollution to banking. These are issues that enjoy majority support from working Americans and American communities but not from corporate America or America's billionaires. As this book shows in parts one and two, the court has historically almost always sided with the wealthy, the powerful, and the corporate against the poor, the weak, and the individual. In many cases, these decisions have struck down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president, a process called judicial review. This book answers the core questions about the Supreme Court's decisive role in determining the fate of the planet. Why did the framers create the Supreme Court? What is judicial review, and how does it make the Supreme Court what Thomas Jefferson, post-1803, called a despotic branch? How does the history of the U.S. Constitution explain the Court's frequent decisions in favor of the wealthy and corporations? When has the Court sided with popular opinion, and how have people successfully challenged the Court in the past? How did a 20th century coalition of businesses and billionaires seize control of the American government, including the Supreme Court? And why is this now a planetary crisis? Most important, what can Americans do about all this? In the beginning, there were those among the founders and framers of the Constitution who didn't mean for the court to have this much power. Thomas Jefferson was among them. Part one of this book dives into the philosophies that guided the men who drafted the Constitution. It also shows how in 1803, the Supreme Court set itself above Congress and the president with the power to review, strike down, or rewrite laws based on its own lone interpretation of the Constitution. Importantly, the framers of the Constitution gave no consideration to the rights of nature or even of the environment, 
other than its sheer productive potential to enhance the wealth of the nation. Instead of the environment, when the Constitution was written in the summer and fall of 1787, the new thing in political circles was the idea of property rights for commoners, which had only clearly been articulated outside of the realm of royal prerogatives during the previous few centuries. John Locke wrote in his 1689 Two Treatises of Government that the main purpose of government was to make sure that, quote, no one may take away or damage anything that contributes to the preservation of anyone else's life, liberty, health, limb, or goods. It's the hidden history of the Supreme Court and the betrayal of America by Tom Harbin. Bloomberg reports there's an increasing number of people concerned about their wealth due to the fear we may be entering a larger economic crisis than 2008. If you've been paying attention, you know the Dow recently had its sixth largest point loss in history, and the stock market continues to show extreme volatility. Meanwhile, central bank gold purchases have risen to a six-decade high, sending gold prices higher. CNBC and the World Gold Council reports Russia and China are swapping out U.S. dollars from their own portfolios, investing in safer, more liquid assets like gold. And what makes things even more suspicious, the U.S. Federal Reserve reportedly holds the most gold of all central banks. What's everyone getting ready for? If you share the gut feeling that something is soon to go south with the global economy, call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Proper gold and silver strategy will help secure your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Gold. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-OWNGOLD. Russ in Aetna, California. Hey, Russ, what's on your mind today? Bernie Sanders should emphasize his ideas for getting money out of politics and fixing our election systems because obviously some people are a little bit put off by the left-wing policies. I'm not personally... But everybody wants to clean up Washington, and the best way to drain the swamp is to put a strong democracy back in the hands of the American people. Yeah, I agree with you, Russ. Although one thing you said has me baffled. I hear this a lot on on CNN and MSNBC, and I never, but it's literally never explained. People say, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are too far left, and people are put off by left-wing policies. But when you look at what the American people want, more than 80% of Americans want Social Security strengthened. More than 60% of Americans want Medicare for all, including more than 50% of Republicans. The vast majority of Americans, as you point out, want politics cleaned up. Some 82% of Americans want free college or debt-free college available to everybody. The vast majority of Americans, I forget the number now, I think it's in the 90s, want drug prices in the United States to at least be the same as they are in Canada and other developed countries. The majority of Americans want our banks to be regulated in a way that prevents another crash. The majority of Americans want clean air and clean water, and they don't want more poison in our environment. So what is the left-wing policy that Bernie and Elizabeth Warren advocate that has so many people so concerned that it's too extreme? What is that policy, Russ? What am I missing here? Well, you know, oddly, I just spoke with my sister on the phone, and she's very left-wing but doesn't support Medicare for all. She thinks it's just going to be too much of a disruption. Um, a disruption you know, of what? You're no longer going to have your insurance company saying, no, we're not going to pay for that bill? Right. I know. Well, I, you know, I definitely don't agree with that either. I think some disruption is going to be needed. And right, currently, we're paying insurance companies to do nothing, you know, to take your money and give it to the doctor. So they're a middleman that accomplishes nothing. Right. They're just bankers. Uh, 
yeah, I don't see there's any reason to pay for that anymore. But right. there are people who, whatever the policy is, I mean, I, I just I think, think they've been watching too there. much television, and the television is paid for by the big pharmaceutical companies who are the largest advertisers now on cable television. And those pharmaceutical companies do not want Medicare for all, because Medicare for all, the single-payer system, means that the government would suddenly be able to negotiate all drug prices, and they would lose $60 yeah. billion dollars a year in, in windfall profits, basically and profits that they're taking right now that they are not taking in any other country and that they are just stuffing into their bottom line, into their pockets, that, you know, and, and uh, you know, so, so I get it. Well, I definitely think that Bernie can still win, even if he doesn't emphasize his, you know, plans to clean up Washington more. But um, we also have to, you know, we have to overcome the spending. We have to overcome the right-wing gerrymandering, all of these, you know, tactics to try to take our vote. We yeah. need to make those up with people who may not be on board with the far left. With the far left. You know, I thought the far left was the Communist Party, the people who thought that government should, you know, take over General Motors and make cars. I guess the far left are people who think that Canada's health insurance policy is a good idea. Amir in West Hills, California, listening on KPFK. Hey, Amir, what's up? Hello, yes. Uh, Tom, I wanted to re-echo basically a plea for contributions to Pacifica radio stations throughout the United States, particularly coming from the Kurdish community. You highlighted basically the main contradiction of our times, and that is basically tyranny versus democracy and raising public consciousness about issues that people do not know about. Walter once had said that there is nothing more annoying than to be vaguely hanged. And that was basically the history of the Kurds in the past, but now mm -hmm. it's in the open. And I would say uh, to your basically discussion about the role of democracy and how it is under threat throughout the world, going back to Western Northeast Syria, Rojava, I think tyranny is really against any form of diversity and heterogeneity. And mm -hmm. Rojava in Syria was the very expression and the epitome of this diversity, which is now brutally under attack. And it is happening. The ethnic cleansing is in the making. And I, yes. I hope that radio stations like KPFK continue to financially are capable of promoting the just causes for secular democracy anywhere in the world, and Kurds have a stake, and therefore they should support Pacifica. Yeah, well said, Amir. Thank you very much for the call. Kay in Darby, Montana. Hey, Kay, what's up? The Dean scream. Mm -hmm. I remember that, and I remember being so appalled at what the media did to him. And they did it one week after he told Chris Matthews <laughs> that he thought that the big media should be broken up. Yeah. Yeah. Surprise, surprise. So, so it's no surprise um, to think that they are probably going to do this to Lizzie or Bernie or both. Right. And I love both of them. And Me too. so what I fear is that, you know, because of what they'll do, they'll be out of the race and we won't have Medicare for all. But I'm also concerned about Medicare itself because of you know, what I've heard from you about Medicare Advantage and what I've seen, that it's just a hoax and a scam. And so I'm just 
very concerned. And and uh, regarding what your last caller said and 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 you that discussion, yeah, I'm I'm far left, and I don't think anything is all that radical that that they're proposing. Yeah, let's not forget that Franklin Roosevelt in his second Bill of Rights, his proposed second Bill of Rights, which was just you know it was earlier in the same year that he died, so he never he never had a chance to finish this, but Franklin Roosevelt proposed that everybody should be guaranteed a job by the government, that all education, including college education, should be absolutely free and paid for by the government, that all health care in the United States should be absolutely free and paid for by the government, and that everybody in America should be guaranteed housing by the government. That was a Democratic president. And, I mean, you, you want to establish, I think that's a midline for the left. I don't think that's the far left. And uh, neither Bernie nor, nor Elizabeth Warren are even going as far as Franklin Roosevelt did. Um, so, but, and yeah, I share your concern about the Dean scream. You know, I saw David Brooks' column in the New York Times today. It has begun. The, the onslaught against, uh, this was specifically against Elizabeth Warren. They're starting to see that, you know, she is rising in the polls. She is uh, steadily, you know, eating away at not just Bernie's support, um, you know, which was kind of predictable. You've, you've got, you know, people, uh, sim similar ideologies. And, you know, some people, particularly people who think we should have a woman as a president, might start moving from Bernie to Elizabeth. I mean, you, you could see that. You know, there'd be some small amount of that kind of motion. But now she's eating into Joe Biden's support. Uh, she's, right. you know, she's 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 taking a, uh, she's ta she's eating into Kamala Harris and and Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar's support. Um, So-called Democratic moderates are starting to say, you know, Elizabeth Warren actually sounds pretty solid to me. And so, you know, the battle begins, right? And and David Brooks, uh, Republican columnist for the New York Times, conservative columnist for the New York Times for years and years and years, um, started that war this morning in the New York Times, and and it's going to start getting played out in a big way. And and I, it just makes me crazy when I hear these these uh, millionaire talking head pundits on CNN and MSNBC say the far left and never say what the hell are you they're talking about I mean you know as I said a few minutes ago the vast majority of Americans and I don't need I'm not going to go through the percentages again I'm not sure I can still remember them all but the vast majority of Americans want Social Security strengthened they want Medicare strengthened they want a national health care program of some kind they want free college education for their kids they want uh, the banks to be you know broken up and regulated they want polluters to be un, you know regulated and under control they want our drug prices to come down uh, they, they want us to do something about poverty and homelessness. The vast majority of Americans, these are not far left positions. These are right in the middle of America positions. And, and, and these, these idiots on television who say, oh, it's too far left, oh, the extreme left. And they never explain what they're talking about. Can somebody please call and tell me one policy that has been proposed by Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or any of the Democrats? That, you know, I mean, well, universal basic income. What? I, I don't even think that's left. That's more libertarian. You know. uh, Tom, can I make one other point? Please. I'm starting uh, to, I'm starting to one spit. One thing that they <laughs> really, really fear, which isn't even talked about that much, is campaign finance. Oh, yeah. Because we had that, we wouldn't have this big media because they yes. wouldn't be getting these billions of dollars. Yes, yes. You know, we wouldn't have people that we, I somewhat like, you know, like, um, Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow, all that would go away 
And it would ultimately be a good thing because they couldn't do what they're doing. I actually really like Rachel Maddow's show, and she she highlights a lot of things. But there are some yeah. areas that they just don't go into, which uh, I guess I kind of fill in the blanks here. But the point is that as long as the bread and butter for the networks is drug advertising, you're not going to see a serious conversation about pharmaceutical pricing and, and Medicare for all, which will affect pharmaceutical pricing on that same media. And by the way, there are only two countries, two developed countries in the world that allow pharmaceutical companies to advertise on television, New Zealand and the United States. That's it. We are one of only two. So anyhow, I got to move along. Kay, thanks for the call. Jason in Winter Haven, Florida. Hey, Jason, what's up? Carolyn Maloney is the New York City Democrat who represents Trump Tower in the uh, House, and right. she takes over the House oversight from uh, Cummings, who is a great man. Right, on a, tempor on a temporary basis. The committee really? has to vote for its new chair, but right now, she's the, oh. temporarily, she's the chair, yes. Oh, okay, but well, I was thinking if she were the uh, oversight committee as full everything to that, that she would, she would know all the Trump dirt and where the quote, quote, financial bodies are buried, so to speak. She may well. And, you know, I, I have to confess, I've, I've never really carefully followed Carolyn Maloney. I don't live in New York. She doesn't represent me. Um, she's no. never come on our program. Uh, I, everything I've heard about her is that she's a good and decent, you know, member of of Congress and and one of these people who you know less peacock more do your job stuff and mm -hmm. uh, you know all that's good but stepping into Elijah Cummings shoes that's a big job that's a Very really much big so. job yep Thank okay you, Jason thanks a lot for the call Morris in California hey Morris what's up hey Professor Jeff is out hello hello Adonai that's a prayer. I'm studying Hebrew right now. Mm -hmm. and I've been told by my Hebrew teacher that I speak more Hebrew than most Jewish people. But I want to share this with you. Uh, you were talking about democracy. I wasn't going to fool with you today, but when you were talking about democracy, you got my ear. There's a lady named Nancy McLean. She wrote a book called Democracy in Chains, right. the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. Now, what she says and her theme is, we are the longest standing democracy, the Bill of Rights, etc., but we are the least responsive, voter suppression, election fraud. And, and I would take issue with this. The greatest threat that humanity has right now isn't so much from the right-wingers with their false narrative, linguistic and euphemistic phrases, but I think it's found in the Democratic Party, which are corporate Democrats. Remember a few years ago when Mr. Obama was the president and the Swiss bank paid nearly $3 billion fine because 40,000 Americans were hiding their money in that account over there because they didn't want to pay taxes? Do you yeah. remember that, Professor? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I believe in my heart and soul that a lot of those folks were, you know, in government, right, on people that... Uh, oh, I believe so, too. Morris, have you seen The Laundromat? No, sir, I haven't. There is a movie that played, it stars Meryl Streep, it's got an all-star cast, it's amazing, Antonio Banderas, a whole bunch of people, um, and it played one day in theaters, and then the two lawyers who are portrayed in the movie uh, sued and got it out of distribution, and they just lost, finally, after a year and a half or thereabouts, uh, finally lost their lawsuit, and it's available now on, on Netflix. It's called The Laundromat, and it's the story of how, it's the story of the Panama Papers, how all these insanely rich people who were hiding their money through this one uh, Fonseco something or other, this one law firm that these two lawyers um, uh, ran, I mean, they were literally making thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of shell companies to, to hide money and, and basically screw people.
And you know, it starts out with this with this uh, woman whose husband drowned in a boat, and it turns out that the insurance company wasn't going to pay because um, it was a shell company in Panama, and it was just a it was just a scam to steal money from people, blah de blah. And uh, but it's it's the same thing as what happened with the Swiss bank. It's a it's really a great movie. It's called The Laundromat. And it's on Netflix. Louise and I watched it just a couple days ago because it just became available last week. Anyhow, back to you, Morris. Well, I'm going to check it out. And I want everybody to know, don't don't be depressed. Next year is not an election year. It's a movement year. We got a movement going on, go. y'all. Remember down in Hawaii when Monsanto spent $80 million and the Hawaiians only spent a million dollars and the Hawaiians beat them? That's how, that's how we're going to beat the money this year. Everybody's going to get out and vote. There's a movement. We got to think of coattails. If you put a, a, a corporate Democrat up there, we got some trouble. If you put a progressive up there, we got this. All the way down to the school board. Get out and vote. Thank you. From your lips to God's ears, Morris. <laughs> spot on. And this, I mean, this is really, this is going to be the deciding election. I am convinced. I, you know, and I, I, I have known that the stakes were really high for many of the elections while I've been doing this program and throughout my life. I thought the stakes were really high when Reagan was elected. I thought, you know, if, if, if Ronald Reagan comes into power, we're probably going to have World War III. It's probably going to be a nuclear war. Reagan, Reagan was such a warmonger. He apparently got restrained, but he set all this stuff in motion that led us right to Donald Trump. And we're either going to repudiate Reaganism and neoliberalism and elect a progressive president and a House and Senate, or we're not. And if not, I'm not real optimistic. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Louise and I use New Leaf Natural CBD oil and love it. CBD oil doesn't get you high, which is great for people who want the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana or even recreational. It's non-toxic CBD. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand that we're, we're using is New Leaf Naturals, NU Leaf Naturals, the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's N-U-Leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com. That's nuleafnaturals.com, nuleafnaturals.com. And to get that 30% off and free shipping in the U.S., use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at nuleafnaturals, at nuleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, nuleafnaturals.com. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Democracy in Chains, The Deep History of the Radical Rights Stealth Plan for America. It really is a deep history. It's brilliant. Uh, this is from the introduction. As 1956 drew to a close, Colgate Whitehead Darden Jr., the president of the University of Virginia, feared for the future of his beloved state. The previous year, the U.S. Supreme Court had issued its second Brown versus Board of Education ruling calling for the dismantling of segregation in public schools with, quote, all deliberate speed. In Virginia, outraged school, uh, state officials responded with legislation to force the closure of any school that planned to comply. Some extremists called for ending public education entirely. Darden, who earlier in his career had been the governor, 
could barely stand to contemplate the damage such a rash move would inflict. Even the name of this plan, Massive Resistance, made his gentlemanly Virginia sound like Mississippi. On his desk was a proposal written by a man who had recently been appointed chair of the economics department at the University of Virginia. 37-year-old James McGill Buchanan likes to call himself a Tennessee country boy, but Darden knew better. No less a figure than Milton Friedman had extolled Buchanan's potential. As Darden reviewed the document, he might have wondered if the newly hired economist had read his mind. For without mentioning the crisis at hand, Buchanan's proposal put in writing what Darden was thinking. Virginia needed to find a better way to deal with the incursion on states' rights represented by Brown v. Board of Education. To most Americans living in the North, Brown was a ruling to end segregated schools, nothing more, nothing less. And Virginia's response was about race. But to men like Darden and Buchanan, two well-educated sons of the South who were dedicated to the idea of, uh, to its model of political economy, Brown voted a sea change on much more. At a minimum, federal courts could no longer be counted on to defer reflexively to states' rights arguments. More concerning was the likelihood that the high court would be more willing to intervene when presented with compelling evidence that a state action was in violation of the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. States' rights, in effect, were yielding in preeminence to individual rights. It was not difficult for either Darden or Buchanan to imagine how a court might now rule presented with the evidence of the state of Virginia's archaic labor relations, its measures to suppress voting, or its efforts to buttress the power of reactionary rural whites by underrepresenting the moderate voters of the cities and suburbs of Northern Virginia. Federal meddling could rise to levels once unimaginable. James McGill Buchanan was not a member of the Virginia elite, nor is there any explicit evidence to suggest that for a white Southerner of his day, he was uniquely racist or insensitive to the concept of equal treatment. And yet somehow, all he saw in the Brown decision was coercion. And not just in the abstract, but the court ruling represented to him was personal. Northern liberals, the very people who looked down on Southern whites like him, he was sure, were now going to tell his people how to run their society. And to add insult to injury, he and people like him with property were now no doubt going to be taxed more to pay for all the improvements that were now deemed necessary and proper for the state to make. What about his rights? Where did the federal government get the authority to engineer society to its liking and then send him the bill? Who represented their interests in all this? I can fight this, he concluded. I want to fight this. Find the resources, he proposed to Darden, for me to create a new center on the campus of the University of Virginia, and I will use this center to create a new school of political economy and social philosophy. It would be an academic center, rigorously so, but one with a quiet political agenda to defeat the perverted form of liberalism that sought to destroy their way of order, of life. A social order, as he described it, to promote a social order, as he described it, built on individual liberty. A term with its own coded meaning, that, but one that Darden surely understood. The center Buchanan promised would train a, new li a line of new thinkers in how to argue against those seeking to impose an increasing role of government in economic and social life. He could win this war, and he would do it with ideas. While it's hard for most of us today to imagine how Buchanan or Darden or any other reasonable, rational human being saw the racially segregated Virginia of the 1950s as a society built on the rights of the individual, in quotes, no matter how that term was defined, it is not hard to see why the Brown decision created a sense of grave risk among those who did believe that. Buchanan fully understood the scale of the challenge he was undertaking and promised no immediate results, but he made clear that he would devote himself passionately 
to this cause. Some may argue that while Darden fulfilled his part, he found the money to establish the center, he never got much in return. Buchanan's team had no discernible success in decreasing the federal government's pressure on the South all the way through the 60s and 70s. But take a longer view. Follow the story forward to the second decade of the 21st century. And a different picture emerges, one that is both a testament to Buchanan's intellectual powers and at the same time the utterly chilling story of the ideological origins of the single most powerful and least understood threat to democracy today, the attempt by the billionaire-backed radical right to undo democratic governance. For what becomes clear as the story moves forward decade by decade is that a quest that began as a quiet attempt to prevent the state of Virginia from having to meet national democratic standards for fair treatment and equal protection under the law would, some 60 years later, become the veritable opposite of itself, a stealth bid to reverse engineer all of America. Democracy and change. We've got a lot on our plate from peace and war, Democrats and Republicans, corporate buyouts, the, the sellout by the Supreme Court this morning of the voters of Michigan, and a five to four decision that Elena Kagan said was, she just ripped it apart. But hey, you know, it's like it's a five to four decision with uh, the Trumpkins all going, yeah, 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 gerrymandering, good, everything else bad. Alina in Seattle. Hey, Alina, what's on your mind today? We can't rely on any one politician to save us. Yeah, I agree. Uh, we are the answer we've been waiting for. So, yeah, fingers crossed. I'm a Bernie supporter. If he gets elected, Democrats take the Senate. We still need to fight like hell to get the Green New Deal passed and fix the Supreme Court and everything. So yeah. if we win that one, it'll be just the beginning. I'm, I don't want to have any more... Uh, faith in politicians. Um, I did that when Barack Obama was elected. I'm not making that mistake again. It's. I think your your statement that we are the ones we've been waiting for is is the the key to the whole thing. That if we don't have what Bernie calls a political revolution, what I would call is grassroots bottom up politics. If we don't have a large enough base of people who are actually engaged and actually show up and participate that this 40-year campaign that the billionaire class launched against democracy with the beginning, you know, beginning with the Reagan administration and arguably beginning in 1971 with the Powell memo and then Richard Nixon putting Powell on the court in 72 and then the Buckley decision in 76 and, and, and First National Bank in 78 saying that billionaires and corporations can own politicians, uh, which led us to Reagan. Um, that 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 revolution will not be turned back, and the end result, uh, where we will get to, and we're very close to right now, is something that resembles fascism, and and we're seeing the rise of what I would call fascism all around the world, the corporate state, or or a state run by oligarchs, and I'm very concerned. Yes, this. Uh what I want to say is also, um, you mentioned uh, Koch Brothers launching another effort to dismantle what we have left of the social welfare system. Right. Uh, and uh, it, the you know, punchline is uh, work makes you free or something like that. That was the slogan over Auschwitz. Uh, work, yeah. makes you, work makes free, yes. Uh, their, their actual phrase, and I'll quote it, is the redeeming power of work. I had, completely, I had completely forgotten that that was the slogan over 
Maybe it wasn't Auschwitz. Maybe it was uh, uh, Dachau. Auschwitz and other Nazi camps, too, yeah, not just yeah. Auschwitz. Yeah, because Louise and I visited Dachau, and I think it was Dachau, but uh, whatever, you know, which is near, was it near Nuremberg? I think, yeah, south of there. Anyway, this is their sales pitch now. You know, if we cut people off from their benefits, they will want to go to work. And I think if you cut people off from their benefits, particularly if there's not work available to them, or at least not meaningful work available to them, you destroy them. You're going to be fueling more addiction and more crime and more despair and more broken families. And I mean, you know, we need to give people, you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have bootstraps. And, you know, there's got to yes. be a starting point. There's got to be a baseline here. Alina, thank you so yes. much for the call. It's great to hear from you. And, and uh, thank you for listening to KBCS. Richard in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Richard, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Long time no talk. Thank you for what you do. You're welcome. I would like to ask uh, the House of Representatives and, and the Senate um, uh, members to please pass resolutions, laws, or anything to get out to the public that says that a and a president, a vice president, any high official that is convicted, impeached and then convicted of a crime, cannot be pardoned for that crime that he's been impeached for or any, any crime associated with it. This is We don't need to go ahead and redo this, what, what happened with Nixon. It, it's already been done. This should be a law. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the pardon power of the president says that the pardon power shall be used except in times of impeachment. Richard, let me think Gerald about that. Ford, that makes a lot of sense to me. Gerald, Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon. That, right. You know, game over. Don't fool me twice. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I, I, when you say it that way, I, I totally get it. Richard, thank you. Thank you very much. Jonathan in Warwick, Hello. Massachusetts. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? Yes, hi. Um, I just wanted to say that I agree with you. I think we're at our last gasp. But I think you have a much more liberal viewpoint of democracy. I, I, I'm hoping that democracy does happen in 2020. Uh, but since 1963, I feel like our lost USA Republic came to be because every president since has betrayed their oath of office by not disclosing that level of coup d'etat or conspiracy that killed our president. But I think 2020, I'm with flybynews.com, and we're endorsing Bernie Sanders like uh, Ocas um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others because Bernie's the only guy that has a foreign policy of any of the candidates uh, that has took action against uh, Saudi Arabia's attack on Yemen and um, <clears throat> um, is proposing uh, clean energy. Yeah, and Bernie's been talking about this stuff for years, you know, spot on. And three members of the squad have endorsed him. And by the way, I got an email this morning from his campaign in the last, whatever the period was, I, I, I don't know if it was a quarter or a month, but he got 400,000 more donations than Donald Trump did. That's a good sign. And of course, Elizabeth Warren is also climbing in the polls. And 26,000 people in New York with AOC. Not bad. Not bad at all. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Hey, want to tell you about a great podcast, The Election Ride Home. Someone is going to challenge Donald Trump for the White House. The Election Ride Home is a podcast dedicated to figuring out who that someone, or maybe even multiple someones, will end up being. Every day at 5 p.m. Eastern, veteran journalist and This American Life contributor Chris Higgins 
catches you up on what happened on the campaign trail. Who's up, who's down, what issues are getting traction, what do the polls say? It's a 15 to 20 minute show that keeps track of all the latest news and summarizes it so you don't have to be nervously refreshing your web browser 12 times a day. It's like TLDR as a service. So if you want to catch up on what you missed on your way home, search your podcast app and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast.